October the 5th, 2011. Last week, last Wednesday, we talked about Rosh Hashanah. Amen. And uh, I can't remember the own titles <laughs> to my own messages. Uh, wake up call. Thank you very much, Brandon. You take great notes. Even if it's inside your brain. So I wanted to pick back up on that. And today's message is going to be called To Be Continued. Now, usually when you see that at the end of a movie, you should expect a sequel, right? Everybody shake your head like this. Yeah, yeah. you should see a sequel. Now, if you see that on like Friday the 13th, part 12, to be continued, you're like, oh, this is a joke. I'm just trying to get to 13 because of the name. Which is exactly what they did. So, uh, as I heard, I read on Facebook. Somewhere. So, but what we have is uh, Rosh Hashanah. Can anybody tell me what that Hebrew word or term means. It is a new year. You said it, Steph? Say it real, real loud. That is blasting my ears. I think they're bleeding. <laughs> it means new year. It means head of the year, the beginning of the year. Now, what were some key signatures, particularly some of the articles you see here on our communion table, that were used during Rosh Hashanah? A shofar. In fact, the truest name of Rosh Hashanah is Yom Teruah, Ruah. You know, the Ruach HaKodesh, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. This was the day of shofars, the day of sounding the call, sounding the trumpet. Now, the time period, the 10 days that was to occur from Rosh Hashanah leading up to the next feast, which was... Feast of Tabernacles? Nope, that's to come. Uh, that's the last one. There's one in between that. Yom Kippur. We know it in English as the Day of Atonement. Or payday. No. Uh, but you have Rosh Hashanah and ten days of awe. Now this wasn't going to go gaze at the beauty of the mountains and you know enjoy the new festival of the Lord or the, all the goodies that were going to be served during Rosh Hashanah. It was ten days of evaluation and self-reflection. The two key signatures, for those of you guys who are taking notes, the two key elements of what Rosh Hashanah was supposed to do is regather and repent, but with a slight flavor of hope. So why would there be hope? Because the Day of Atonement was 10 days away. Can you say that sometimes, kind of like in our worship service that we just experienced, that the law the pause, the wait is actually mercy, not judgment. So when we pause during worship, during that time, honestly, we're, it's like a mini Rosh Hashanah right all through a worship service. In the very beginning, there's a loud call. There's a fast song. There's a, a call to come into his courts and to his praise. And as you begin to walk and get into that presence of God, now you're confronted, like that song says, face to face with God. And you guys know whenever you're in sin, you don't really like to be face-to-face -face with God. What did Adam do after he had him in need? He hid. He hid. He, he hid from God's face. So a lot of times, or the, sometimes the goal or one of the functions of worship is to bring you face-to-face -face with God. Because honestly, what it's going to do is bring you face-to-face -face with your own sin. But so that you can be judged and condemned for it? No. No. So you can be set free from it. Now this is, once again, coming into the feast. This is how the feast 
are to be seen, analyzed, but also participated in on an annual basis. We get together for Christmas, right? And annually, we participate in emptying our bank accounts, filling our stomachs, and filling the toy boxes and closets in our homes. But can you imagine every single year if what Christmas was all about was a three-staged progression of repenting for 10 days, making sure that you were right with God, and knowing that on that New Year's Eve bonfire, which is kind of turned this way, you were going to have to be at least confronted with, did I change this year? Did I hold to the commitments that I promised to? We say New Year's resolutions. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose this much weight, I'm going to pay off my debt, or whatever else it's going to be. That just didn't, you know, come down from heaven to the Gentiles alone. This was the idea of Rosh Hashanah leading up into Yom Kippur. That I had 10 days to get right with God, but also because of the regathering of the entire nation of Israel, you had a chance to get right with your fellow man as well. So that when that day came, that sweetness of honey that was all a part of Rosh Hashanah, that sweetness of honey was awaiting that hope of salvation for the entire nation of Israel. Now let's turn that back on our Gentile customs. Imagine we're getting to that point. And let, for, just for instance, we have Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. And during Thanksgiving, there's that self-evaluation. You're thanking the Lord. There's sweet treats to remind you of the hope that's to come for Yom Kippur. But you're being reflective. You're self-evaluating, getting things right with God and with men. You're meeting those relatives that smack at the table, that eat disgusting things and tell crude jokes. You really hate them. You don't want to be around them, but you know you have to be a witness to them. Lord, do I have to do this? And yes, you do. Yes, you do. And you're now face-to-face -face with that one cousin, that one uncle, that one Aunt Bunny that you just don't really want to be around. But you never knew that you were harboring unforgiveness in your heart until you sat at that dinner table with this is what Rosh Hashanah does. Now leading up into Christmas, it's a, it is the main element. It's what all the other feasts lead up to. This one key element. Will Israel as a nation be declared righteous in God's sight? All of us were lost at one point. And I can tell you, there is no better feeling and be able to lay down in my bed at night and not have to pray again, Lord, forgive me for all of these sins. Going back to day one of the earliest memory of my sin, no matter how many times I prayed, I never felt cleansed. I never felt washed. I never felt whole. Now granted, you guys know, you know me, you know yourselves. We are not perfect. That's why we need the blood of Jesus. We don't willfully live in sin. We willfully run the opposite direction. But there was a time before the blood of Jesus was taken by us when that wasn't applied. And all we were left with was a constant guilty conscience that couldn't be washed clean. But that day of Yom Kippur has come. It is not only the blood of the Passover lamb, but is the same sacrifice that will declare 
not only the nation of Israel, but all of mankind redeemed, restored, and saved. And the end result is this, a resurrected body. You guys that are over the age of 25 or 30 are beginning to encounter the groans and moans of joint pain. Yes, amen. Especially for those of you who participate in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But there's a longing. There's a groaning that's without and within all of creation, as Romans speaks about, that longs to see the sons of God clothed in glory. This is the resurrection. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. During the Feast of Tabernacles, they would celebrate a temporary dwelling. It would symbolize them journeying through the desert and going towards the end goal of the promised land of God's permanent dwelling for His name and therefore His people. So you still got your Bibles ready? Yes. Let's get into the Word. Now in a very schoolish teacher fashion, I'm going to give you guys four S's to help wrap up and summarize what Rosh Hashanah is. And the first, like we mentioned earlier, is self-evaluation. So let's turn to, uh, turn to Micah 7.18. As we're turning, you guys can call out to me. During Passover, or right after Passover ended... Begin what feast? I'll give you... Feast of Unleavened Bread. It'd be the Feast of Wheat if it were Triscuits. But no. Um, so the, I'm sorry, I'm just being funny. Yes. <laughs> oh, Feast of Weeks? Yeah, that's Pentecost, actually. First? I thought, I'm sorry if I said wheat. <laughs> uh... I know, yes, exactly. I'm kind of corny. So Micah 7. So you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you had to go throughout your house and look for what? Yeast. Leaven. You look for yeast, things that would make bread rise. For seven days, you would celebrate this feast. It was one of also very similar to Rosh Hashanah, repentance, uh, receiving the Passover lamb the night before, Symbolizing Israel's plight out of Egypt and heading into a direction that God would bring to them or give them to bring them into the promised land of Canaan. But Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Feast of Tabernacles really echo something very similar in the first four feasts that there is a sacrifice that brings redemption. But Passover is for the individual. Each individual house had to partake of this. Each individual house had to go through and find the leaven and get rid of it. And each individual house would bring a lulav, a wave offering, for the uh, first fruits. And then during Pentecost, they would all reassemble and bring the first year's harvest uh, during that time as well. Well, in the same light, in Rosh Hashanah, this is a time of self-evaluation. You would go through your life and find out what you needed to repent for so that you can bring it before the Lord. And one of the scriptures that's read today, uh, it might have been back then, there's no real historical start date of it, was Micah 7, 18. 
through, oh, we'll read to the end, you'll get it. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. One of the methods of self-evaluation or the end goals of self-evaluation is so that you can experience the discipline slash temporary judgment of God and then proceed into his restoration. Is it possible to be born again without being repentant? No. No, no not at all. So it's okay to say that. Yeah, we read throughout the word, but specifically, Scripture says, you, uh, if we deliberately keep on sinning, it's in Hebrews, <coughs> deliberately keep on sinning after we receive this sacrifice, there's no sacrifice for sins left. That means that you are willfully staying in a state of being separated from God and missing the mark of what He has desired to have a relationship with you. So during this self-evaluation period of Rosh Hashanah, you were looking, and corresponding to verse 19, hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You were looking for these breadcrumbs. This is how they celebrate it these days. They take breadcrumbs that symbolize the elements of their life that were outside the will of God, the sin. And it's celebrated by moving and flowing waters. And they would read this verse and throw these breadcrumbs into the water and watch them be taken away. No longer, no longer to be seen again. Now, if you come from some of the land that I do, a lot of times traditional rituals become the holiness elements themselves. So does breadcrumbs going into a river actually make you redeemed no. and right with God? No. But isn't it good when you can have a visual act, a representation that is part of the process of evaluating your spiritual condition and then acting on it and say, Lord, I give all my all to you, but first I come to you with my sins, with my faults. If you can't come to the cross first, then you will never have the right to experience the resurrection of the grave. The cross comes first. And what did Jesus say? Deny yourselves, pick up your cross, and follow me. Pick up your responsibility to bear that same shame, to bear that same element being crucified in him but also judged by his word. What's the term we always hear when you're witnessing to somebody? They can't see you're a hypocrite or somebody else is a hypocrite. When you're trying to get them to have a self-evaluation and know where they're at with God, one of the last you know, nuclear bombs that they'll throw is, don't judge me. That's what the word says. Mm -hmm. No. A lot of times I'm, I want to be very peaceful uh, you know, Paul commends Timothy, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. So, without quarreling with that person, you gently and kindly look at them and say, I'm not judging. It's not mine to judge. I didn't die on the cross. But he did. And his word will judge you. I'm just trying to show you what's to come. If you don't repent. 
and as much as flack as people can give you about self-evaluation of themselves, they know when they lay down in their bed if they're really guilty or not. It plagues their conscience, not mine. We are given the commission to go make disciples, but that really starts with us being obedient and leading into preaching the word. We said over and over again, so a famous quote of Charlie Brown, if I could beat the gospel into you, we would wrestle and fight every single day. Mm -hmm. I would have a four-foot paddle attached to my Bible. And just swing and wait for them to hit a home run to come. So this process of self-evaluation for you can look a lot like when it's witnessing to somebody else. What happens when you open up the Word or really in worship as well and your heart begins to flutter and you begin to think, maybe that Word is for me. Maybe that word is for me to repent. Maybe I need to go down to that altar. But then you have that little kickback of, no, that's for somebody else. Or, yeah, you know, I know that so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and that's their usual weakness, and it's not mine. No, it's not me. Or, how dare they say that? That person knows the intimate details about my life. They're just using prophecy to call me out. How dare they judge me? Those thoughts ever go through your mind? No. No, never. I need a sacrifice for life. And whether I see y'all's faces or not, but as a worship leader, I can feel it. I can feel it's there. That God wants to do a work. He wants to help you have that self-evaluation. But the first thing has to be done is that you're willing to be evaluated. And part of the discipleship, not the part, but all of the discipleship process begins with being vulnerable and saying, Lord, <laughs> be in control. I want to be evaluated by your word. I want to be weighed. I want to be measured. And I'm okay if I'm found wanting. Sound familiar from Daniel? <coughs> 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. So how do you know? 2 Corinthians 13, 5 is going to tell us. How do you know when you have the right kind of repentance? How do you know whenever you're witnessing somebody, you're hearing all the right words, but you're confused by the actions a little bit? This has been a great go-to. No, this is still part of self-evaluation. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail that test. That's actually not the one I really want to read. It's a different one. Uh, but, hey, long and short, I'll work with that one as well. I'll get to the other one next. If ever there comes a point when you're confronted with that that bucking against the judgmental attitude of a prophecy or just what the word says you're not sure if it applies to you Paul commands for you to examine yourself test yourselves and he's really saying I hope you pass your own test so you guys tell me what are some characteristics of somebody who is born again just call them out joy obedience 
Obedience to what? To God. Obedience to God. Anything else? Improving. In Improving? Improving? Being changed. Yeah. There we go. Uh, one more. Peaceful. Your mama knows it. <laughs> Your mama knows it. I say that's the best answer I've ever seen. That, I'm, I'm dead serious. Yes. Keith, Keith Green used to say it all the time. If your mama doesn't see that you're born again, you're really not born again. You just turn the leaf or go through a new phase. And that should mean that born again is truly you are a new creation in Christ. You look, you act nothing, nothing like you used to. And the glory part about it is that it's not on your own strength. It's every bit of his flowing through you. Are you ready for the scripture I was eventually trying to get to? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, I had it down. Okay. And this is where y'all intercede. And pray for me. There we go. Uh, the scripture I'm, I'm referencing is uh, whenever... Oh boy, my mind just went absolutely blank. This is good. I like it. <laughs> oh. Godly sorrow. Oh, oh. Oh, we got it. Is it five? Is it five? And maybe it. 2 Corinthians 7.10. There we go. And that is there. Mm. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Probably wrote it down, but couldn't read my own handwriting. Okay. So this is the litmus test of how do you know if godly sorrow is, or, God, or repentance is true. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no what? Regret. Regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Here we go. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote you, it was not an account, but he's talking about a situation within the church of, of a guy who wouldn't repent of a sin. And he's giving them the litmus test, the outline of what godly sorrow versus just plain worldly sorrow should look like. And this is what I was talking about earlier. All those years that I spent praying in my bed, hoping that I would wake up the next morning not feeling guilty for everything I had done and still remaining unwashed, that led to death. Because honestly what I was looking for was, Lord, please clear my conscience. I don't want to feel guilty for these things, for these things anymore. I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. There's death. What happened after I got born again is that I was free, I was clear, and I did not have any regret. It was a miracle. I didn't have any regret or guilt for all the things that I had done wrong in the past. Amen. None. Yeah. And it was, a, it was it's an amazing miracle because it's then and only then you know the power of the cross. The blood of Jesus has truly washed over you. When it is doing something in you that you can't do for yourself. People sit on bar stools 
day in and day out and try to drink that guilt away. They shoot themselves up with drugs. It's everything that you can think of this world has to offer. They consume themselves with, and it's still unable to get rid of that, that guilt and that regret. Mamas who have aborted their babies. Husbands who have abandoned their families. The list goes on and on and on. The scars are there and they're not healed. But we have the hope. You guys are living testimony, walking examples of Jesus making something that was torn and scarred and broken into something that is new and living and totally new from the ground up. You're able to see the, the cross and the power of the blood of Jesus make you completely new from head to toe. So self-evaluation is supposed to lead to a repentance that leaves no regret and that runs to the hope we have in the resurrection. You ready for the second one? Yeah, great. Sacrifice. Now let's picture this. We have Rosh Hashanah. We spent five days performing self-evaluation. And all of a sudden, things come to mind. Things you've done that year that you didn't repent of. Things that broke the law. If you were an Israelite, the law of Moses, given at, at Mount Sinai, was given to you as an accordance and a way to live right. And you just realized that you've broken a few of those laws. Here's something that we don't experience either. When we come down to the altar, unless there's a specific word about a specific sin, nobody really knows why you're coming down to the altar. But now as an Israelite, walking to the temple to get things right with God and men, he has to bring sacrifice and offering for his sin, right? It's outlined in Numbers and Leviticus. For this sin, you bring two pigeons, a dove, a ram, and a bull. For this sin, you bring four pigeons, three rams, two bulls, and a box of cookies. Or whatever else it may be. But someone who was the whole community, because they understood these things backwards and forwards as part of all their life and their culture, they could see you walking from the marketplace to the temple and know exactly what sin you committed by the things you were hearing. Isn't that a good picture? That repentance involves, or what usually was required, is full vulnerability, full exposure. To think you can just go home, kneel down beside your bed, get right with God, move along and nobody will ever know, if it's not made public in some form or fashion now, it eventually will be at the judgment seat of Christ. We will know as we are fully First Corinthians 13. So every deed that we do in the body, every idle word that we murmur is going to be on full display before not only all of your peers, all of mankind that has ever existed. They will fully know. And if this was something you had to do year after year after year, one or two things would happen to you as an Israelite. One, you would sin less. 
The fear of the Lord would be the beginning of your knowledge and your wisdom. Or two, you would begin to hide your sin. You'd say, well, let me just get a sacrifice that really is for this minor thing, like two pigeons. But what I need is about, oh, 1,400 bulls. Or how about this? What if you committed a sin that deserves death and nobody knew about it? And now you're coming to Rosh Hashanah, a time of self-evaluation and a time to bring sacrifice to get right with God. And you knew that if you confessed, no blood of bulls or goats could absolve you of what you deserve. You deserve death. And the, the sustainability of your family, the heritage, the name, everything was now on the line. What did you do? What has happened to us in Jesus is that in the same manner, we are all condemned to death. We've all been deserving of death. There's no one righteous, no, not even one. But what we do have is the ability to approach God's throne of grace with boldness and confidence and say, Lord, I deserve death. I deserve to die because of my sin. And I need the sacrifice of your innocent son to wash over me, make me a new creation. I don't deserve to live. I want you to be Lord over every single part of me. I am tired of walking around with this guilt. I'm tired of straining to be good, much less righteous. It's when you take up that cross is when you begin to die and he begins to live through you. This was the entire picture that God was repeating over and over and over again in the nation of Israel. That you need to confront your sin. You need to have sacrifice in a public way that demonstrates this. Repentance. So that whole nation of Israel could be deemed righteous. That's the next part of sacrifice. Is that the sacrifice of Jesus wasn't just for you. I know we had that saying, we sing that song, if, if while he was on the cross, I was on his mind. You know? I think it's that Ray somebody. Yes, that intensity and that love was there, but honestly, that's an American view of a communal and time span communal sacrifice. Hebrew says he died once for all. It's for the community. It's for Yom Kippur that is to come is why he died. Yes, he was the Passover lamb for us individually. But when we join in his death, we also are able to join in his life. Sacrifice of Jesus is the only thing that can wash your mind and your heart of guilt, of stain, of sin. Does anybody remember Eric teaching on the total worm? Mm -hmm. Is this indelible ink that would permeate anything it touched and could not be washed off. And when the scripture says, though my sin be like crimson, you will make me whiteness. The blood of Jesus is able to remove every stain, every sin, everything that has ever been out there. 
and he did it one time that was practiced nikra over and over and over again for 1600 years he did it one time for the entirety of humanity do you realize that we are able to worship tonight and not only feel but experience god's presence and have his prophetic move move through us because of the sacrifice he made once for every single one of us. And we can go there again and again and again and get everything that we need from God's presence, that same presence that existed within the Garden of Eden, and walk with God and come face to face with him. I think if you evaluated your heart at times when you feel furthest from God, it's one or two things. It's either sin, or his condemnation is being heaped upon you by lies. And saints, you need the word inside of you to know precisely how to deal with it. First of all, you need to know what sin is. Sin is unforgiveness. Sin is hatred. Sin is being greedy and self-centered. devil begins to bring back things that you know you've already been washed and cleansed and set free from. That's condemnation that's undeserved and you're letting the liar whisper in your ear. And I have no problem with you telling him to shut up. You have to. You ready to go to the next scripture? Mm -hmm. Can I ask the last question? Yes. Um, so, you know what would happen who are committed, secretly committed those terrible sins, what would they do? If they repented, would they forgive it? Or what? <laughs> God is just. Yeah. And his righteousness is just. What you see a lot of times you know, in the Word is that even though these men wouldn't uh, admit their own sin, God's judgment uh, or the judgment that of their sins would reach the heavens, just like uh, Romans talks about there. And they die. They either like Herod fall on the ground or eaten from worms from the inside out. Starting in this area is what happened now. Uh, you'd have a bull that would get loose and gore a man that was wicked and unrepentant. Uh, when entire communities would be unrepentant and full of sin, like Sodom and Gomorrah, you have something that a rhythm man could never predict. Destruction of an entire nation. In fact, does anybody know the reason why Israel went into captivity, in Babylonian captivity? They repent of particularly what? Idolatry? Yes. Yeah, core element that was in. But prescribed by the law, what did they miss? Because they were in captivity for 70 years. And one year of captivity equaled one year Sabbath that they did not do for the land. They did not give the land rest. For 490 years, so that's a Sabbath is every seven, seven times seven. For 490 years, they did not let the land rest and therefore trust God rather than their own arm, idolatry. God said, okay, I've given you 490 years to repent. I will have my justice. You'll go into captivity. And honestly, we're truthful. The sin that we're usually involved in is idolatry. What's the first commandment, guys? 
what's first because that's probably the one that happens the most. All right. Romans 12. One of my favorites is this scripture because it, it really outlines what worship is. Yeah. It doesn't have to happen in the building. It doesn't even have to happen to music. Everybody Church of Christ say amen. <laughs> it is a lifestyle. The word worship, I don't like to say this, but anyway, political agendas aside, the word worship in Hebrew is barach, or barak, B-A-R-A-K. It needs to be submitted and bowed down in reference to. So with that in mind, Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Wait, I thought about it was a good guitar riff. I thought it was a three-part harmony when we sing, you know, going up to the high places. You know, that is kind of cool. But is that our spiritual act of worship? No. I mean, truly, is what pleases God harmony of voices and skill of playing songs? No, that... Honestly, if that is all it is, isolated, that's the glory of man, not the glory of God. But what is the glory of God? Denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Him. That is this verse. You're a living sacrifice. You're a walking dead man hanging on that cross. Can't say it enough so many times that we're to live a lifestyle that is submitted to God. But what that looks like is you die to self. And having a discernment of understanding when is it like just my internal thought, but also when is it my sinful nature that's wanting to rule my own life and not letting God rule. That comes from being in the Word. That comes from being around other Christians who are walking right, and all of a sudden you stand out like a sore thumb when you don't. That should happen. That's why you fellowship. If you're hiding in your bedrooms of your homes, avoiding fellowship, you may not be in sin now, but I can guarantee you eventually will be because you don't have that vulnerability. You don't have that exposure of if I make a mistake in front of my peers, it will be blatantly evident and I'll have to repent. Or I may look like a fool or I may be looked as less than. That's fine. Dead men don't have feelings. You can't hurt a dead man's feelings. But if I'm made alive in Christ, I see everything through his eyes and see as life and righteousness. Amen? Amen. Third thing, sanctify. Genesis 2-3. On the first day of creation, God did what? He said, let there be light. There we go. Went to Starbucks. He said, let there be light. And he separated light from darkness. On the seventh day, he rested. There's something just key here. Brandon, read two verse three for me out loud. Say it loud. We're all waiting. 
And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So was the seventh day unholy? No. He rested from all his work, but it said that he made it holy. Hmm. I know. He sprinkled holy water on it. No, not really. Well, let's see. Let's go through. All days of creation, he said things were good, so are very good. But you know what? The seventh day was really the only one that he said that he made it holy. To make holy is to sanctify. That's our third one. Set apart for God's use. So all you ladies, whenever you're all emptying the dishwasher, or the stack of dishes on the side like my mom does with the drying towel, and you see that spoon or that fork that just has that one piece of dried lettuce and casserole still on it, what do you do with it? Yeah, exactly. You lick it and you put it back in. No. <laughs> Is it set apart for use? No. There's still something wrong with it. It's not holy, right? So what do you have to do to it? You go and you wash it again. You get it off and then you're able to set it inside the holy of holy cabinets for utensils. <laughs> well, the seventh day is really no different. Not that it was unholy beforehand. But what he did, and I would equate this more to the, the china and hand towels for uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, is that they are set aside for a very specific and unique use. If I used certain hand towels growing up, or if I went and couldn't find any plate that was clean and went to this nice little hutch and got this beautiful flower china set to fix my you know, hot dog and hamburgers on, you know, that would make most moms just flip out. Like, wait a minute. That's our festival china. Well, whatever you want to call it. It's our, our holiday stuff. But it's set aside for a specific use in it. And mom made it holy. If you cross that barrier, there would be a flaming sword that would chop you. What God did, he took that seventh day, he rested from all of his work, and he set it apart for his use. Now, Jesus later on is challenging the Pharisees. And it's amazing. If you do a concordant search for how many times Jesus healed on the Sabbath and it infuriated the religious leadership because they saw that as work, they missed the whole goal. The whole goal of setting apart the Sabbath as holy is that the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. It was set apart that God would rest from his work to set a pattern that we would rest from ours and we would do His. So resting on the Sabbath doesn't look like getting out of church at 12.30, going to eat at Carabas for two hours and then laying on the couch and passing out until 7 o'clock. I've done that, I'm sorry. That can't happen. There are those times for family time and you just so happen to pass out as you're watching Megamind. But what it's supposed to be is a day to do exactly what Jesus inaugurated himself in the ministry. To proclaim good news to the poor. To bind the wounds of the brokenhearted. To set the captives free. Find time in your Sundays 
set it apart as holy. Yes, to have family time. But you know what? That family time can also look like taking your children to go visit some neighbors that you've never met before. To go do a secret act of kindness for somebody that cannot repay you. That's how you set aside His holy day and keep it set apart for His use. You're ready for the fourth one? Fourth one is able to serve. And let me wrap this up in the bigger picture. Why did I choose the ones that I did? So first, call them out to me. We have what? Second, we have what? Third, we have what? And fourth, we have what? Able to serve. Now with those four elements in mind, let me walk you through, venture out into the squelch zone here. Let me walk you through the the design that God gave Israel for the temple. You would have the outer courts where you had Gentiles, right? Well, you would walk from those outer courts into a place where you would first be confronted with bringing your sacrifice. Or your, uh, your sacrifice. So that distance, that time period of entering past the outer courts, past the norm, past the hubbub of life, with a sacrifice in hand, totally vulnerable, exposed to the entire nation of what you've done is wrong. It's that self-evaluation. That journey to the altar. And once you would get to that altar, you would hand the priest the sacrifice. You would be evaluated by him. He would take your sacrifice and offer it on the altar. Consumed by fire. And usually, it was the fat portions of the animals that were offered. Things that hold toxins, poisons, and are rather unfeathered. But these things would be consumed on the, on the altar by fire. And once burned down to complete ashes, they would be gathered up and brought into the holy place. Not the most holy place, but the holy place. This is where you had the showbread, you had the menorah, the lampstand, and you had the altar of incense. And you would take this in, the, these ashes and put them on the high priest of the priest, would put them on the altar of incense, and it would be a fragrant offering to the Lord that he would desire. You would partake of the daily bread, and the light that you could see and be guided with was the menorah representing his presence. Then and only then, once a year during your Kippur, the high priest would go through these actions and go past this veil and take the blood of the sacrifice and pour it on the mercy seat and wait for Israel to be declared righteous, sanctified, able to serve. So this process of evaluating yourself being a living sacrifice on God's altar, letting his fire, his presence consume you all the way down to the point when you are unrecognizable of who you used to be and letting those ashes of who you were consume down his presence, be laid down on the hot coals of his presence in his altar and that fragrant, that sacrifice of you becoming less and him becoming more 
is a fragrant offering to the Lord. And then turning around and taking up his daily bread, actually Jesus himself, and walking in the light of his menorah, of his presence. That enables you to serve. So do you all see within the structure of Israel, repeated year after year, really all year long, but these major feasts repeated by the whole nation of Israel, year after year, ingrained in them a repetitious understanding of what repentance and salvation look like. At the beginning of the outer courts began repentance, but the end goal was the very presence of God and being declared righteous in His sight. That's where we want to be. So what does that look like here? You know, I could put my chimney right there. I could put my wash basin, a little galvanized tub right there. That'd be the labor that you wash in. We get a, you know, some pistolets, some uh, menorahs, and you know, I'm just being facetious here. We don't have these things in part of our culture repeat year after year, but you know what we do? Every Sunday, every Wednesday, and even every Monday, we get together as a community. It's like a mini Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. And when we get together, we fellowship, we get right with God, we get right with man, and we begin that trek through the tabernacle of God in worship. Or even when you're sitting there listening to the word and foundations. And this is something that we get to repeat over and over and over again so that it is ingrained in you what being right with God is. Being right with God is not stepping into a building. But sometimes being right with God is participating with the people that are inside that building. You guys know you've ever been in Sandy Poland's parking lot, your heart's thumping. You know it's the right thing to do, but you just know everybody's going to be able to read what's going on with you across your forehead. <laughs> and you're not sure if you want to enter in through those doors or not. But when you do, when you make yourself vulnerable, and then that point in worship, you come and you kneel down and get right with the Lord, or go to another brother or sister that things have been at odds with, and you get it right with them. It's at that point you just took yourself and let yourself be consumed by the fire of God down to nothing but ashes. And that act of repentance is a fragrant offering to the Lord. And you know when you get up from that altar, there's a freedom. There's a, a lack or removal of guilt and stain. And you're now able to go back to your seat, worship freely, fellowship the rest of the day, and not be hindered by the conviction Saints, the Lord has called us to walk in fellowship with Him. And that requires us to be open, honest, repentant, but also the end goal being restored in His presence. So hopefully this brings some understanding that helps you know where your heart's at, properly evaluate it, also know where you need to get to. Because if you stay in that guilty conscience too long, you begin to harden your heart. You begin to shove away that prompting to want to get things right with the Lord and with men. Worship will become dull and repetitious. And that word or prophecy will seem obscure. 
and I'm applicable to you. And the next thing you know, you'll find yourself consumed with another god or another idol, trying to get rid of that guilt that won't leave. So this is our charge. This is the, the goal I set for you guys. Intercede for one another. Pray for each other. Fellowship. Be a family. If you see your other brother stumbling in sin, grab them by the arm and pick them up and help point them towards a better way that there is hope. There's that sweetness in Rosh Hashanah and repentance so that we can all collectively enter into God's presence together. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand on our feet. All right, I'm rather repetitious, therefore annoying. Tell me the first S. Second one. Third one. And fourth one. Y'all want to be made able to serve? Amen. Me too. Well, let's begin by holding hands. Mighty God, I thank you for this family. I thank you for these brothers and sisters that you have surrounded us all by. And the unity that we have is by your spirit that you put within us, by the sanctifying work of your blood that has washed us. And Lord, we have a zeal that consumes us to please you above all others. Lord, I pray that as they go about their rest of their week and coming into Sunday, Lord, that they are able to take this word and apply it to themselves, but also offer it as a hope, as an apple with honey on it for those that are perishing. Bring before each one of us, Lord, those that are perishing, dying, and sinking in their sin and don't know how to get up and get out. Lord, give us your words, place your words in everyone's mouth of the life to speak into these people's lives. Lord, I pray for them to rescue, redeem, and restore everything that belongs to those who are lost in captivity. We thank you, Lord, for making us powerful. And ultimately, Lord, we thank you for making us one in you. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Y'all be blessed.